0: Chapter Twenty Two of the Gilded Age. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Gilded Age by Mark Twain and Charles Dudley Warner. Chapter Twenty Two. In midwinter, an event occurred of unusual interest to the inhabitants of the Montague House and to the friends of the young ladies who sought their society. This was the arrival at the Sassaqua Hotel of two young gentlemen from the West. It is the fashion in New England to give Indian names to the public houses, not that the late lamented savage knew how to keep a hotel, but that his warlike name may impress the traveller who humbly craves shelter there, and make him grateful to the noble and gentlemanly clerk if he is allowed to depart with his scalp safe. The two young gentlemen were neither students for the Falk Hill Seminary, nor lecturers on physiology, nor yet life-insurance solicitors, three suppositions that almost exhausted the guessing power of the people at the hotel in respect to the names of Philip Sterling and Henry Brierly, Missouri, on the register. They were handsome enough fellows that was evident, browned by outdoor exposure, and with a free and lordly way about them that almost awed the hotel clerk himself. Indeed, he very soon set down Mr. Brierly as a gentleman of large fortune, with enormous interests on his shoulders. Harry had a way of casually mentioning western investments, through lines the freighting business and the route through the Indian Territory to lower California, which was calculated to give an importance to his lightest word." You've a pleasant town here, sir, and the most comfortable looking hotel I've seen out of New York, said Harry to the clerk. We shall stay here a few days if you can give us a roomy suite of apartments. Harry usually had the best of everything wherever he went, as such fellows always do have in this accommodating world. Philip would have been quite content with less expensive quarters, but there was no resisting Harry's generosity in such matters railroad surveying and real estate operations were at a standstill during the winter in missouri and the young men had taken advantage of the lull to come east philip to see if there was any disposition in his friends the railway contractors to give him a share in the salt Lake union pacific extension and Harry to open out to his uncle the prospects of the new city at Stone's Landing, and to procure congressional appropriations for the harbour and for making Goose Run navigable. Harry had with him a map of that noble stream and of the harbour, with a perfect network of railroads centering in it, pictures of wharves crowded with steamboats, and of huge grain elevators on the bank, all of which grew out of the combined imaginations of Colonel Sellers and Mr. Brierly. The Colonel had entire confidence in Harry's influence with Wall Street and with congressmen to bring about the consummation of their scheme, and he waited his return in the empty house at Hawkeye, feeding his pinched family upon the most gorgeous expectations with a reckless prodigality. "'Don't let em into the thing more than is necessary,' says the Colonel to Harry. Give a small interest. A lot apiece in the suburbs of the Landing ought to do a congressman, but I reckon you'll have to mortgage a part of the city itself to the brokers. Harry did not find that eagerness to lend money on Stone's Landing in Wall Street, which Colonel Sellers had expected. It had seen too many such maps as he exhibited although his uncle and some of the brokers looked with more favour on the appropriation for improving the navigation of Columbus River, and were not disinclined to form a company for that purpose. An appropriation was a tangible thing if you could get hold of it, and it made little difference what it was appropriated for so long as you got hold of it. Pending these weighty negotiations, Philip had persuaded Harry to take a little run up to Falkill, a not difficult task, for that young man would at any time have turned his back upon all the land in the West at sight of a new and pretty face, and he had, it must be confessed, a facility in love-making which made it not at all an interference with the more serious business of life. He could not, to be sure, conceive how Philip could be interested in a young lady who was studying medicine, but he had no objection to going, for he did not doubt that there were other girls in Falk Hill who were worth a week's attention. The young men were received at the house of the Montagues, with the hospitality which never failed there. "'We are glad to see you again,' exclaimed the squire heartily. "'You are welcome, Mr. Brierly. Any friend of Phil's is welcome at our house.' "'It's more like home to me than any place except my own home.' cried Philip, as he looked about the cheerful house and went through a general handshaking. "'It's a long time, though, since you have been here to say so,' Alice said, with her father's frankness of manner, "'and I suspect we owe the visit now to your sudden interest in the Fall Hill seminary.' Philip's colour came, as it had an awkward way of doing in his tell-tale face, but before he could stammer a reply, Harry came in with, That accounts for Phil's wish to build a seminary at Stone's Landing, our place in Missouri, when Colonel Sellers insisted it should be a university. Phil appears to have a weakness for seminaries. It would have been better for your friend Sellers, retorted Philip, if he had had a weakness for district schools. Colonel Sellers, Miss Alice, is a great friend of Harry's, who is always trying to build a house by beginning at the top i suppose it's as easy to build a university on paper as a seminary and it looks better was harry's reflection at which the squire laughed and said he quite agreed with him the old gentleman understood stone's landing a good deal better than he would have done after an hour's talk with either of its expectant proprietors at this moment and while philip was trying to frame a question that he found it exceedingly difficult to put into words the door opened quietly, and Ruth entered. Taking in the group with a quick glance, her eye lighted up, and with a merry smile she advanced and shook hands with Philip. She was so unconstrained and sincerely cordial, that it made that hero of the West feel somehow young and very ill at ease. For months and months he had thought of this meeting and pictured it to himself a hundred times, but he had never imagined it would be like this. He should meet Ruth unexpectedly, as she was walking alone from the school perhaps, or entering a room where he was waiting for her, and she would cry, Oh, Phil! and then check herself, and perhaps blush, and Philip, calm but eager and enthusiastic, would reassure her by his warm manner, and he would take her hand impressively, and she would look up timidly, and, after his long absence, perhaps he would be permitted to... Good heavens, how many times had he come to this point, and wondered if it could happen so! Well, well, he had never supposed that he should be the one embarrassed, and above all, by a sincere and cordial welcome. "'We heard you were at the Sassacus house,' were Ruth's first words, and this, I suppose, is your friend?' "'I beg your pardon,' Philip at length blundered out. "'This is Mr. Brierly, of whom I have written you.' and ruth welcomed harry with a friendliness that philip thought was due to his friend to be sure but which seemed to him too level with her reception of himself but which harry received as his due from the other sex questions were asked about the journey and about the west and the conversation became a general one until Philip at length found himself talking with the squire in relation to land and railroads and things he couldn't keep his mind on, especially as he heard Ruth and Harry in an animated discourse and caught the words New York and opera and reception, and knew that Harry was giving his imagination full range in the world of fashion. Harry knew all about the opera, green room and all, at least he said so, and knew a good many of the operas, and could make very interesting stories of their plots, telling how the soprano came in here, and the basso there, humming the beginning of their airs, tum-ti-tum-ti-ti, suggesting the profound dissatisfaction of the basso recitative, down among the dead men, and touching off the whole with an airy grace quite captivating, though he couldn't have sung a single air through to save himself and he hadn't an ear to know whether it was sung correctly. All the same he doted on the opera and kept a box there, into which he lounged occasionally to hear a favorite scene and meet his society friends. If Ruth was ever in the city, he should be happy to place his box at the disposal of Ruth and her friends. Needless to say, she was delighted with the offer." When she told Philip of it, that discreet young fellow only smiled, and said that he hoped she would be fortunate enough to be in New York some evening, when Harry had not already given the use of his private box to some other friend. The squire pressed the visitors to let him send for their trunks, and urged them to stay at his house, and Alice joined in the invitation, but Philip had reasons for declining. They stayed to supper, however, and in the evening Philip had a long talk apart with Ruth, a delightful hour to him, in which she spoke freely of herself as of old, of her studies at Philadelphia and of her plans, and she entered into his adventures and prospects in the West with a genuine and almost sisterly interest. An interest, however, which did not exactly satisfy Philip. It was too general and not personal enough to suit him." and with all her freedom in speaking of her own hopes, Philip could not detect any reference to himself in them, whereas he never undertook anything that he did not think of Ruth in connection with it. He never made a plan that had not reference to her, and he never thought of anything as complete if she could not share it. Fortune, reputation, these had no value to him except in Ruth's eyes and there were times when it seemed to him that if Ruth was not on this earth he should plunge off into some remote wilderness and live in a purposeless seclusion. I hoped, said Philip, to get a little start in connection with this new railroad and make a little money so that I could come east and engage in something more suited to my tastes. I shouldn't like to live in the West, would you? It never occurred to me whether I would or not, "'was the unembarrassed reply. "'One of our graduates went to Chicago "'and has a nice practice there. "'I don't know where I shall go. "'It would mortify Mother dreadfully "'to have me driving about Philadelphia "'in a doctor's jig.' "'Philip laughed at the idea of it. "'And does it seem as necessary to you to do it "'as it did before you came to fall "'It was a home question "'and went deeper than Philip knew,' for Ruth at once thought of practising her profession among the young gentlemen and ladies of her acquaintance in the village, but she was reluctant to admit to herself that her notions of a career had undergone any change. Oh, I don't think I should come to Falkill to practice, but I must do something when I am through school, and why not medicine? Philip would like to have explained why not, but the explanation would be of no use if it were not already obvious to Ruth. Harry was equally in his element, whether instructing Squire Montague about the investment of capital in Missouri, the improvement of Columbus River, the project he and some gentlemen in New York had for making a shorter Pacific connection with the Mississippi than the present one, or diverting Mrs. Montague with his experience in cooking in camp, or drawing for Miss Alice an amusing picture of the social contrasts of New England and the border where he had been. Harry was a very entertaining fellow, having his imagination to help his memory, and telling his stories as if he believed them, and perhaps he did. Alice was greatly amused with Harry, and listened so seriously to his romanticizing, that he exceeded his usual limits. Chance allusions to his bachelor establishment in town and the place of his family on the Hudson could not have been made by a millionaire more naturally. "'I should think,' queried Alice, "'you would rather stay in New York than to try the rough life in the West you have been speaking of.' "'Oh, adventure,' says Harry. "'I get tired of New York.' and besides I got involved in some operations that I had to see through. Parties in New York only last week wanted me to go down into Arizona in a big diamond interest. I told them no, no speculation for me. I've got my interests in Missouri, and I wouldn't leave Philip as long as he stays there. When the young gentlemen were on their way back to the hotel, Mr. Philip, who was not in very good humor, broke out, "'What the deuce, Harry, did you go on in that style to the Montagues for?' "'Go on?' cried Harry. "'Why shouldn't I try to make a pleasant evening? "'And besides, ain't I going to do those things? "'What difference does it make about the mood and the tense of a mere verb? "'Didn't Uncle tell me only last Saturday "'that I might as well go down to Arizona and hunt for diamonds? "'A fellow might as well make a good impression as a poor one.' Nonsense! You'll get to believing your own romancing by and by. Well, you'll see. When Sellers and I get that appropriation, I'll show you an establishment in town, and another on the Hudson, and a box at the opera. Yes, it will be like Colonel Sellers's plantation at Hawkeye. Did you ever see that? Now, don't be cross, Phil. She's just superb, that little woman. You never told me." "'Who's just superb?' growled Philip, fancying this turn of the conversation less than the other. "'Well, Mrs. Montague, if you must know.' And Harry stopped to light a cigar, and then puffed on in silence. The little quarrel didn't last overnight, for Harry never appeared to cherish any ill will half a second, and Philip was too sensible to continue a row about nothing, and he had invited Harry to come with him.' The young gentlemen stayed in Falkhill a week, and were every day at the Montagues, and took part in the winter gaieties of the village. There were parties here and there to which the friends of Ruth and the Montagues were of course invited, and Harry, in the generosity of his nature, gave in return a little supper at the hotel, very simple indeed, with dancing in the hall and some refreshments passed round. And Philip found the whole thing in the bill when he came to pay it. Before the week was over, Philip thought he had a new light on the character of Ruth. Her absorption in the small gaieties of the society there surprised him. He had few opportunities for serious conversation with her. There was always some butterfly or another flitting about, and when Philip showed by his manner that he was not pleased, Ruth laughed merrily enough and rallied him on his soberness. She declared he was getting to be grim and unsocial. He talked indeed more with Alice than with Ruth, and scarcely concealed from her the trouble that was in his mind. It needed, in fact, no word from him, for she saw clearly enough what was going forward, and knew her sex well enough to know that there was no remedy for it but time. "'Ruth is a dear girl, Philip, and has as much firmness of purpose as ever, but don't you see she has just discovered that she is fond of society?' Don't you let her see you are selfish about it, is my advice. The last evening they were to spend in Falk Hill, they were at the Montagues, and Philip hoped he would find Ruth in a different mood. But she was never more gay, and there was a spice of mischief in her eye and in her laugh. Confound it, said Philip to himself, she's in a perfect twitter. He would have liked to quarrel with her, and fling himself out of the house in tragedy style, going perhaps so far as to blindly wander off miles into the country, and bathe his throbbing brow in the chilling rain of the stars, as people do in novels. But he had no opportunity. For Ruth was as serenely unconscious of mischief as women can be at times, and fascinated him more than ever with her little demurenesses and half-confidences." She even said thee to him once in reproach for a cutting speech he began, and the sweet little word made his heart beat like a trip-hammer, for never in all her life had she said thee to him before. Was she fascinated with Harry's careless bonhomie and gay assurance? Both chatted away in high spirits, and made the evening whirl along in the most mirthful manner." "'Ruth sang for Harry, and that young gentleman turned the leaves for her at the piano, "'and put in a bass note now and then where he thought it would tell. "'Yes, it was a merry evening, and Philip was heartily glad when it was over, "'and the long leave-taking with the family was through with. "'Farewell, Philip. Good-night, Mr. Brierly.' "'Ruth's clear voice sounded after them as they went down the walk.' and she spoke Harry's name last, thought Philip. End of chapter 22